Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 14th, 2010, and my guest is Matt Ridley. His latest book is The Rational Optimist, How Prosperity Evolves. Matt, welcome to Econ Talk. Russ, it's great to be on the show. So your book is um, a remarkably ambitious and really an extraordinary achievement in both depth and breadth. You try to do something that is just a little bit Beyond modest, you try to explain all of human history uh, around <laughs> a small a small slice of of, of what we might want to know about, uh, and you provocatively leverage the idea that trade, the ability to exchange, and the subsequent division of labor that ensues can explain uh, much of human development going back really thousands of years. Yes, one of my uh, ambitions is to try and take the notion of trade a lot further back into prehistory than people generally do. There's been a tendency among anthropologists and archaeologists to say that, uh, look, you can't do trade until you've invented law and order and government and farming and things like that. Um, and I think the evidence suggests that simply isn't true, that hunter-gatherers are perfectly uh, good at trading and that it had a crucial impact on human history. Um, but uh, my other ambition is, is to say, look, this is actually the grand theme of human history. Uh, the, the, you know, forget the wars and the poets and the um, culture, etc. And you know, those are all important. But the the, the 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 thing that's running through human history all the time is this tendency to divide labour on a big scale, and sometimes it shrinks again to a small scale. And but gradually, inexorably, ratchet-like, it grows until we include everybody in this in this habit of getting other people to do things for us and doing other doing things for other people. And working for each other is the great theme of human history. That comes about through exchange in a local way, but it comes about through trade on a, on a wider scale. Yeah, Adam Smith, of course, talked about the human propensity to truck barter and exchange, and you point out, as he did, that animals generally, there's reciprocity among animals, but there is not trade. What's the difference? Yeah, this is this is a, a point that I I have trouble getting across to people, and therefore I'm obviously not persuasive enough yet. But uh, I feel very strongly about this, which is that um, reciprocity, which was a theme that very much featured in my previous book, The Origins of Virtue, um, is indeed something you can find animal models for, animal roots for, uh, because you can find primates, apes, baboons, things like that, that that indulge in reciprocal reciprocal altruism. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Uh, dolphins, vampire bats, there's lots of these examples. They don't actually turn out to be all that interesting in, in terms of explaining the social behavior of animals, but they're, they're, it's a theme. Um, and it's a theme of our story too. Now, I think it's different from what I'm talking about because what it is, is uh, reciprocity is... I do you a favor today, you do me the same favor tomorrow. So it's the same thing being exchanged at different times. Now what I'm talking about is different things being exchanged at the same time. 
So in other words, I give you bread if you give me money, or I give you a fish if you give me a fruit, or whatever it might be. And uh, because it's simultaneous, you don't have this problem of defection, you know, the problem that I could take the favor today and not return it tomorrow. So in that sense, it ought to be easier to evolve. Uh, and yet, you simply cannot find an animal that does this. There is one partial exception, which is there are some insects and some birds which trade food for sex. Uh, basically, uh, if the male brings food, then the female will allow him to mate. Um, uh, but apart from, but in terms of, you know, outside the pair bond, as it were, you can't find examples. As Anna Smith also said, no man ever saw a dog make fair exchange of a bone with another dog. And I got this idea, like a lot of my ideas, straight from Adam Smith. I was very the struck by guy. that, the, the, the sort of zoological um, aspect of Adam Smith's, the first book of, of, of um, The Wealth of Nations, is, is, is a very scientific, very psychological, very anthropological book, in a way, as well as being about economics. Um, and and uh, you simply don't find another animal that ever goes around saying, here's one object, you can have it if I can have the object you have. Interestingly, there's a brilliant scientist called uh, Sarah Brosnan who's been working on this in chimpanzees, and she's been trying to get barter going in, in chimpanzee colonies, and she can do it. She can get chimpanzees to barter tokens for food and things like that. Um, and to barter one thing for another, but only using human mediation. They simply just don't get it. It doesn't click in their heads. They, 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 they don't want to give up something they value, even if it means they can get something they value more. They say, oh, I want to hang on to this. I just want that off you, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Sure. At some point in human history, we crossed that threshold, and we realized that if you give up this thing, which I think I want this thing, it's not that I don't want the fish I've got, but I want the fruit that you've got more, and you happen to be in the opposite position because you've been eating fruit all morning and haven't had a fish yet. It also um, requires, but it also requires a different leap of faith for the trader than the reciprocity leap of faith that you'll come back and and uh, scratch my back tomorrow. And I, I just, you know, thinking about trade is it's it's such a rich and complicated subject. It seems so simple. I give you something, you give me something. You give me something I don't have. I give you something you don't have. But when you think about it, as you just pointed out, it's not just that I'm going to give up something that I like to get something that I want more. As a result of that trade, as you emphasize over and over again, we're going to specialize if we really want to exploit this opportunity to trade. So think how scary it is. I'm going to only make one thing. I like two things or maybe ten things, but I'm only going to make one in the expectation and hope and this is what we all do in the in 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 our trading, in the expectation and hope that someone else will want it and will give me the other things I don't have. That requires me to assume that eventually someone will come along with those desires, who likes my stuff and who has stuff that I want before money. That was that barter problem uh -huh. is a real problem, yeah. and that that uh, that they'll feel the same way I do. They'll take that risk to swap, and. Um, you're really right in emphasizing that that is um, – you can see in the animal world, right? If you spend all your time doing one thing, if you didn't get those trading partners, you're going to die. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and this – how we navigated this move away from self-sufficiency 
uh, and, and by the way, people say self-sufficiency is security and we need food security and oil security and all these kind of things. Actually, self-sufficiency is terrifically vulnerable. I mean, you know, look at what happened when countries had to grow their own food in the Middle Ages. You know, one bad harvest and everybody's starving. Whereas now, one bad harvest and the price adjusts and food flows around the world and everybody gets a bit. And, you know, the, some people suffer if the price goes up too much, but it's, you don't get starvation, at least not come, on a wide scale. Sorry. So, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say on the animal thing, the other thing I wanted to, to mention, and the pair bond is very important because in the animal world, because there is specialization in the animal world. You do have the di- sexual division of labor, right? You have uh, across the everywhere, you have people who specialize, well, but let, only let in the family. Yeah, that's right. Well, you, you have, I tell you what you have, you have the reproductive division of labor a lot, and that's the one we don't have. <laughs> um, ironically, you know, in other words, in ants, you have, uh, let's, let's leave the reproducing to the queen, we'll do the working, she does the reproducing. Right. And you have that in honeybees and naked mole rats and termites and all these kind of things, and it's a brilliant system. It means you can build up these giant families, which we call colonies, which, which work very well, and they have divisions of labor with them, sometimes really quite sophisticated divisions of labor between, you know, different kinds of workers and, and, you know, soldiers versus workers and that kind of thing. But they, they can never go beyond the colony. The, the division of labor is confined to the colony, which right. is basically, as I say, a big family, because it's based on this reproductive division of labor. And I like to joke that, you know, reproductive division of labor, reproductive specialization is the one thing we don't like to do. It's the one thing we insist on being self-sufficient. Yes, in. we know, do. I'm, I'm we not can. happy to find that my queen is doing all the reproducing for me, yep. even in England. Ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> And um, um, so, um, uh, but the sexual division of labor, which is the phrase anthropologists use for male hunting versus female gathering and the sharing that then follows, that's a pretty uniquely human thing. Now, you do get species in which the two two sexes specialize in terms of hunting, but they don't often do a lot of sharing afterwards. Well, that's very interesting. Actually, the, the idea that I go hunting for meat and you go, and my wife goes digging for roots, and we then come back and share, may be the oldest example of a gain from trade, uh, of a real Ricardian or Smithian gain from trade. Because um, when you think about it, it's a beautiful system on the African savanna because it means that if I'm a male, um, my chances of coming back with a dead warthog are pretty low. I mean, there's a lot of days I'm going to come back empty-handed. Um, how am I going to feed on such a day? Well, I can rely on the fact that my wife is digging up some roots, so there's bound to be something to eat. Um, on the other hand, think of it from her point of view. She thinks, well, roots are all very well, but I'd really like some protein from time to time, but I just can't afford the time or risk the effort of going hunting, um, particularly when I've got kids that, you have to look after or something. Um, I tell you what, uh, I'm in a beautiful situation because he can go hunting. All I have to do is collect. All I look, you know, if I want warthog meat, all I've got to do is dig some extra roots, and then I've got something to trade for warthog meat. So both sides benefit from the exchange. So the book opens with a really extraordinary chapter that I've, I'm now adding to my pantheon of my favorite um, collections of how much life has changed. You, you start off by saying. Uh, life's a lot better than it was 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 years ago, but it's even a lot better than 100 years ago, something I've written about. It's 
a lot better than 50 years ago, and we find it so difficult to appreciate that incredible transformation. And so underlying, we're going to come back and talk about trade a lot more, but I want to, yeah. I want to put that in the context that you do at the beginning of the book, which is the optimism, the idea that – and I heard uh, uh, James Buchanan say this beautifully the other day, uh, colleague here at George Mason. He said, you know, when I look to the future, I get very nervous talking about the current economic situation. He said, but when I look to the past, I feel pretty good because there were a lot of times when things looked bleak. You take the Great Depression just to take a, a relatively modern example, right? If you were alive in yeah. 1933 when unemployment was 25 percent, your forecast for where the United States economy was going in the next 20 to 30 years would be very, very bleak. It turned out to be a very bad prediction. It turned out, of course, that we recovered fairly quickly. There was a lot of suffering and hardship. But the long-run trend is so gloriously positive, and it's so easy to forget that. So I, I, I want to let you talk about that first, the, before, then we'll talk more about trade. Uh, talk about your, your underlying optimism. Yeah, well, this is, uh, I mean, for me, I became an adult in the 1970s. I was, you know, 21 in 1979. Uh, that was a pretty depressing decade in many ways, um, particularly if you're in Britain. You know, we, we, we basically considered ourselves to be in decline and we turned the lights off two days a week or whatever. And, um, uh, but it wasn't just Britain, you know, the population explosion was said to be out of control, famine was inevitable, a cancer epidemic caused by chemicals in the environment was going to shorten our lives, our sperm counts were supposed to be going to falling, uh, the acid rain was going to kill the forest, the desert was advancing at two miles a year, you know. Unemployment was high, inflation was high. Unemployment was rising, the uh, the oil was going to run out, um, (laughs) uh, and we were going to have to get used to negative growth or or whatever. Nobody ever said anything to me about how the future was going to be great. They literally just never even discussed it. At least the grown-ups didn't. And uh, so over the next two decades, as I watched my country snap out of recession, have a pretty tidy boom that actually was pretty well spread through society, um, and I saw the rest of the world do the same, and then I saw China and India take off, and and uh, and you know an extraordinary reduction in poverty, illiteracy, ill health, uh, hundreds sort of, of millions, of hundreds of millions of people. It wasn't just like well, this little corner they caught onto something and they did a little better. It just it's a glorious twenty five years. It's an incredible story. And not only that, people became healthier, wealthier, wiser. They, they lived longer. They, um, they, they became freer. And they became more equal. You know, I went, I've been, so, I, so what I did was I simply went and looked up the numbers. I said, uh, okay, I've suddenly realized that actually the world's always been getting better and everybody's always been saying it's about to get worse. Uh, and so let's go look up the numbers. And I was amazed by the numbers. You know, I mean, uh, lifespan up one third in my lifetime globally. I'm not talking about, you know, um, any one country here. Um, per capita income trebled in my lifetime in real terms. Um, that includes Africa. And, you know, this is at a time when the population has doubled. So there's this thing called prosperity, and it's actually growing. And I'm not saying, and by the way, people occasionally accuse me of being Dr. Pangos, um, you know, that this is the best of all possible worlds. That's exactly what I'm not saying. I'm saying, hey, don't you dare try and stop now, because this is still a veil of tears. Do you realize just how much richer we could get if we really pushed forward uh, the human experiment? Um, uh, how much 
how many people we could still get out of poverty. Uh, I find there's a council of despair about issues like Africa. You know, I find people saying, well, you know, Africa's never going to be able to get rich. They said that about India 30 years ago. And, you know, it's not rich yet, but it's on the way. Um, so it, it, this has become, as you can tell from the tone of my voice, an evangelical issue for me. Yeah, me too. I have <laughs> the same issues. <laughs> I just want to, I want to spread the good news, or at least the news about how good it could get. And I find nobody knows. Everybody thinks that we're no richer than, than when, when, they were, uh, when they were born. Uh, they, don't, they forget that they live longer than when they were born. They forget that the population growth rate has fallen or something. You know, you know what I mean? They, they just don't hear the good news. Well, part of it is they literally don't hear it. It's obviously not the focus of most news coverage, and it's also... The Correct. fact of what the human brain focuses on, I, it's why we like horror movies, I guess. I, I'm not, I don't fully understand it. Um, we did a program. I don't fully understand it either, and, and uh, it, it's the question that people ask me most, and it's the one I have a least satisfactory answer to it. I mean, I, I have sort of evolutionary psychology just so stories to tell people about how, you know, focusing on things that might go wrong is probably more rewarding than yeah. being complacent about the world. But I just don't find, I still find the, the fascination with pessimism very surprising. And it, it just, I mean, there's a wonderful quote from H.G. Wells, which I found put in my book, which is that the man who despairs when others hope is regarded by a large class of persons as a sage. <laughs> why, why is that? I don't know. Yeah, that, that is... <laughs> you uh, just sound wiser if you're gloomy, don't you? Yeah, I don't know. It's a fascinating thing. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with being gloomy right now in... in um, 2010. It doesn't look. We got all kinds of other political, economic problems that uh, loom. But as you point out, if you step back just a titch from the canvas, uh, the perspective is pretty cheerful. Well, exactly, and and um, you know, and I don't want to sort of belittle the problems people have. I, you know, absolutely not. And that, you know, it's part, part of my part of my ambition is just to get people to to be ambitious about solving problems rather than, uh, you know, I don't want people to go around saying life's great or anything. Uh, we take things for granted. That's the funny thing. You know, I mean, uh, there's some hilarious examples of this, like, uh, you know, cursing the fact that you can't get a signal on your mobile phone or that your flight across the Atlantic is delayed by one hour. You know, yeah, I mean, we, we, just <laughs> talked about, we just talked about this with the Land of Baton uh, a couple podcasts ago. Yeah, it's an amazing oh, yeah. thing. We take it for granted and we... we we get furious when, when the world doesn't work the way we couldn't have imagined it working 10 years ago. It's, yeah, it's not just yeah. like 100 years. It's, it's 10 years ago we couldn't have imagined what we have now. And we're very, ungrate, right. we're very and, un unappreciative. And, and we say, you know, I hate supermarkets. I mean, come on. Somebody is chopping and washing salad and packing it so it's beautifully fresh, especially for me, and finding a way of charging me almost nothing for it. I, why are they doing that? It's very nice of them. <laughs> well, it, it, of course, they're not doing it out of love. Um, they're doing it out of uh, self-interest, as we'll as we'll get to. And before I forget, I want to mention we did have uh, a podcast on ant colony specialization with Deborah Gordon, an ant expert, and which we'll put a link up to, which is uh, one of my oh, uh, lovely one of my personal favorites. Not maybe every listener liked it as much as I did, but uh, to that one. this distinction between human and animal. Um, Specialization, division of labor fascinates me. Uh, let's get to a criticism one could make of your thesis of optimism, which I'm sure you've heard. I'd love to get your response, which is sustainability. So the standard view 
What you've just said is something many economists, not too many, but some economists believe that um, things not only are getting better, but they will continue to get better. One of the arguments against that isn't just, well, but what about the financial crisis? Because we can imagine that we'll get, a, we'll get by. It may take five years, 10 years, three months. We have no idea. But we can imagine, as in the Great Depression, we'll put it behind us at some point. What about the limits that other people worry about that, that we're, re- we're reducing the resource base of the planet, the oil? Okay, in 1978, we were overly pessimistic, but ultimately, these are finite resources, uh, Along with global warming, we're eventually going to have trouble sustaining uh, not just the growth rate but maybe growth at all, and we may, uh, some say, uh, plunge into a much darker era. What's your argument against that, if you have one? Yeah. Well, my argument against that is that um, it completely misunderstands the nature of what we do with resources. For a start, we do more with less. I mean, that, that's the nature of growth is to, you know, to get more energy out of each um, gallon of oil we burn or something, you know, by devising more efficient cars or, or whatever it is. So, so our, our rate of use of resources per what work we get out of them is always uh, is improving all the time. And secondly, um, if you look at the human footprint on the, on the land, you know, what, how much of the landscape are we needing for our uses, um, it's very, very interesting. It keeps going down. And what I mean by that is that um, back in the 19th century, before we'd invented synthetic fertilizers, we had to um, uh, uh, raid more and more land because our population was going up. And, you know, thank goodness for the American prairies and the Argentinian pampas and the, and the steppes of Russia, because if we hadn't been able to plow those, then there would have been mass starvation as the population expanded in Europe. And we exported people and we imported corn and we just kept going that way. And around 1900, a guy stood up and made a speech, a guy called Sir William Crooks, and said, we've got a wheat problem. We're going to run out of wheat. We're going to run out of land to grow wheat on and we're all going to starve. Well, about 10 years later, somebody invented the harbor, well, harbor invented the harbor process, which is the, uh, essentially a way of getting the nitrogen that's in the air and using it as fertilizer and increasing the productivity of land. And the result of that is that now we've quadrupled the population in this century just ended, and we've pretty well extinguished starvation at the same time, and we've slightly reduced the amount of land under the plow. And we've returned a lot of land to forest in places like the eastern seaboard of North America, for example. Uh, And um, if we were to continue doing that in the next century, when the population isn't going to rise so fast, when it's only going to go up one and a half times in this century instead of four times as in the last century, then we could imagine feeding the world from a smaller, much smaller acreage today, when there's nine billion people, at a much higher standard, with plenty of meat for everybody, um, by the end of this century. And actually, the rainforests would be bigger, not smaller. Now, somebody will say, well, yes, but okay, that's at the expense of using methane, natural gas, which is what we use to make um, uh, uh, nitrogen fertilizer, because it's the energy from the methane that goes into converting the nitrogen into a form we can use. Um, uh, well, yes, but that's a, you know, we're getting our energy now from a hole in the ground, from methane or coal mines and oil wells and so on. 
That means we don't have to get it as we used to have to get it from the landscape. We used to have to get it from the forests. We used to have to get it from the streams. We used to have to get it from the wind. You know, these were the ways we powered civilization before. Now we can let the forests grow and rot and support beetles and birds and things like that because we don't need so much wood to support our lifestyles. And we can let the streams run free and fill up with salmon again because we don't need to dam them every 10 miles as happened in you know, every stream in Britain was basically dammed everywhere possible by the end of the Middle Ages um, to, 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 to make mills to do work for human beings. So um, my argument is that actually we've kind of got this upside down in many ways, we're, we're reducing our impact on the land. I mean, just imagine if we were hunter-gatherers. We would have to go back. Uh, I mean, if we went back to being hunter-gatherers, you and me, um, uh, we'd need a 1,000 hectares each to support our lifestyle. Well, you know, if everybody in Manhattan tried that, there's not going to be a lot of um, wildlife left in North America. Um, so in many ways... Our, our impact on the planet can get less because of growth. Growth is the very thing that can can make civilization sustainable. Um, uh, the more we move forward, the more sustainable it's going to we're going to be. Well, you sound and kind we're of, not going to run. Sorry, go ahead. Well, you sound kind of Dr. Panglossian there, and I have to say, since I share your view, <laughs> I have to indict. I have to indict myself as well. So let me give. Yeah. The um the counterpoint uh view, which is by the way, your your point about the, the the rivers running free and the trees growing as we uh as we go below ground is really a gorgeous point. But the the skeptic would say, Okay, but we've scarred the earth, we've strip mined the coal, we've in turn unleashed all this carbon. And my counter, and you give yours, my counter is we we get as you say we get better and better at using any one gallon of crude crude oil any yep. one ton of coal is cleaner and more efficient than it used to be and there's no reason to think that that process will ever stop that's right and 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 people talk about us as it were using up the copper and using up the steel and using up the the chrome and using up the, the uranium or whatever on the planet and the phosphate, you know, phosphorus is a is a is a um, uh, an element that we have to mine to support our agriculture, and that uh, the high uh, concentration ores of phosphorus are kind of running out at the moment. Um, well, yeah, but the low low concentration ones are not, and they're all over the world. They're, they're pretty well infinite, and it turns out that there is not a single example of a non-renewable resource that has run out. You know, nobody's run out of stone in the Stone Age or iron in the Iron Age or bronze in the Bronze Age. Do you see what I mean? You know, that's not why these ages peter out. It's because we move on to something else. Um, Whereas renewable resources have a nasty tendency to run out. Um, Whales, uh, passenger pigeons, you know. (laughs) They can go extinct. Um, White pine forests, etc. So the the obsession with moving to so-called renewable resources seems to me a bit weird you know the phosphorus that we use in agriculture gets washed down our river and ends up in our estuaries at some point we'll mine the mud of our estuaries to get it back again if we need to um there's a great uh, passage in the book about the evolution of from a guano uh bird droppings to um synthetically produced fertilizer which you just alluded to and it's a beautiful example of how it looked like oh it was hopeless that 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 
prophecy in 1900 that we were going to starve to death because uh, we wouldn't have any more fertilizer because we'd used up all the bird droppings. Uh, you know, it was the yeah. peak bird dropping problem. Eventually, uh, we're going to be <laughs> running out. It just misunderstands the nature of creativity. Of course, Julian, Julian Simon is written eloquently on this. Um, Absolutely. And I, and I I need to pay tribute to a lot of people who've who've got me thinking the right way on this. And Julian Simon is one. You're another. But, um, uh, you know, and, and by the way, I just, you know, I have to throw in a, a plug for The Choice and, and also you. The Invisible Heart, two just fabulous novels that, that explain this much better than I could. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do think that the resource point, um, I mean, yeah, okay, so there's one resource which at the moment people are worried that we're using up and uh, I can't yet prove that we're not, and that's the capacity of the atmosphere for absorbing our emissions. Um, well, we've actually got better, of course, at, at the other kinds of emissions, you know, sulfur dioxide and uh, carbon monoxide and all these kind of things that come out from car exhaust. Uh, a car is now 99% cleaner per mile traveled than it was uh, in my youth in about 1970. Um, so that's why you don't have smogs in Pasadena to the extent yep. that you did uh, 30 years ago. You can actually see the mountains. Um, can we do the same with carbon? Well, we're working on it. Um, I suspect we're about to see a major shift to using a lot more natural gas in the next few decades instead of coal and oil for uh, generating electricity because of the shale gas revolution. Natural gas has, um, I think, a quarter as much carbon uh, per energy, as it were, as coal does. So that shift would be a pretty radical decarbonization. Darn sight more effective than building wind, wind turbines, which doesn't reduce carbon emissions at all because of the backup problem. Um, so um, uh, I think we are working on decarbonizing our economy. Um, uh, can we do it fast enough before it damages the climate? Um, well, I've had a hard look at climate science, and I, I can see a definite evidence that, that you know we might be doing something to the climate through carbon emissions that is slow and mild, I cannot see evidence that we're doing anything that is fast and dangerous yet. Uh, and I think we've got plenty of time to work on this problem. I suspect we'll give up fossil fuels uh, uh, before they even run out. People often say to me, um, well, if you don't believe in climate change, surely you recognize fossil fuels are going to run out. And I reply to them, well, if fossil fuels are going to run out, why are you worried about climate change? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, they should be because we'll start burning those forests down. But <clears throat> unless we get used to being very cold, which is not one of our favorite favorite things, um, not, not in the north of England. <laughs> no. Um, let, let's turn to. I'm going to let me raise a different question. Uh, your book is really an, as I said, an extraordinarily ambitious panorama panoramic look at really the evolution of human development. You start with the hunter gatherer. You go through agriculture. You go through the the um, the move to to cities, you go to industrialization, you come to the modern world, and running through that story is the power of trade. And I've thought a lot about this uh, as a student of Ricardo and Smith, and we did a I did a podcast on some of these issues. Uh, we'll put a link up to the puzzle I have as a longtime fan of Ricardo and Ricardo's theme, which you use many times in the book, uh, is that. Differences allow us to between us allow us to get more than we could on our own, uh, which of course is is a, a standard economic lesson not fully absorbed by the public. Which I hope your book will help. But here's the problem I have: while we have this evolutionary process of cultural and 
uh, human change from hunter-gatherer to farmer to uh, urbanization to industrialization to the so-called knowledge economy, through an enormous part of that history, there was very little progress. So while it's true that at the micro level, being able to trade with you, my near neighbor, not just my family member, but my, my strange neighbor, and then in a city with a bunch of strangers, and then with other farm, you know, before that with other farmers, how it makes me wonder how powerful the force is when in fact most of the improvement in human history took place in the last 250 years. And before yeah. that, the overwhelming story is one of getting by. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, I'll, I'll give my take on it in a minute. What's yours? How do, how do you reconcile the story of the power of trade with that seemingly undeniable fact? Yeah. I just had a, 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 an exchange on the Cato website with Deirdre McCloskey on exactly this. And and um, uh, and, and my, there, there are two words that summarized my answer. Really. One is piracy and the other is um, fossil fuels. Um, the piracy point first. Um, I think that human history is a, um, a competition between uh, the kind of wealth generation that I've talked about and the kind of wealth eating that comes from um, chiefs, priests, and thieves, predators, parasites, um, uh, and um, generally rent seekers, as it were. In other words, there are two ways. Of, you know, you wake up in the morning and you say, am I going to get rich by... Um, exchanging and specializing with someone, or am I going to get rich by pinching someone else's wealth through conquest or um, plunder, uh, sub subjugation, yep. or whatever it might be? Um, and uh, and and the 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 story of nearly all trade booms, and this is why I really enjoyed getting into the uh, the, the history of humanity over the last couple of thousand years. Um, the story of all trade booms is is that. You, you get wonderful efflorescences of, of human prosperity, and then someone comes along and eats them. Um, <laughs> somebody comes along and eats the fruits, as it were, of it, either by conquering or by uh, bureaucratizing your trading zones. You know, so, so the Greek diaspora, or the Phoenicians before that, or the, the uh, Italian city-states, or, or the Dutch... Uh, trading position. You know, the, the, it's, it's again and again. It's 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 free city states that that create enormous prosperity, and then along comes, you know, the Roman Empire or or, or China's, of course, a wonderful example where when China was fairly decentralized, it became extremely rich and had a huge amount of trade with the world. Uh, and then the Ming Empire basically comes along and shuts the whole thing down and says, we're going to regulate everything and we're going to tax everything and we're going to um, close our borders. Right. Close our borders exactly, and and in, you know in Holland's case, the, the the Dutch had a great thing going in the 17th century. What killed it? Well, basically the fact that they had to keep spending huge fortunes, fighting wars against Louis the Fourteenth. Um, so I, I think uh, myself, I think that, uh, and and by the way, you can trace this process back on a different scale, right back to 160,000 years ago. That's one of the the beautiful things that's coming out of a archaeological group in University College London looking at some of these very early explosions of new technologies in, in Africa and looking at them in sort of demographic terms. That What's happening here is that there's a 
there's an increased population density and people are exchanging with each other. Uh, sorry, they can't prove that piracy is what destroys it. But anyway, that would be my guess: is that you know, in the end, warfare prevents these these uh, you know breaks apart these these civilizations. Um, uh, now, then, I have to admit that there is this weird discontinuity in history, and, and people like Robin Hanson are very good at reminding me of this. Um, at around 200 years ago, that uh, that every boom you could look at, you know, uh, Italy, Venice, Holland, etc., doesn't really work at raising human living standards um, uh, because it just gets started and then it kind of grinds to a halt or the population grows or something. It runs into a Malthusian correction often, you know, that genuinely what happens is the population rises and then uh, you start to get a, a resource um, constraint. So, uh, what I like is, is I, I quite like Greg Clark's analysis that, that we escape the Malthusian trap that we Brits do first, and then the rest of the world comes barreling through the hole with us. Um, in the 19th century, uh, Britain had a great 18th century. It, it, you know, it, tra- it did a hell of a lot of trade with the world. It kind of took over the Dutch trade. It, it was, you know, it was lucky because the, 18th, the, the English Channel meant that it didn't have to build up a big standing army, um, and you know, it got the trade with East Asia going. It traded with America. It, it, it did the slave trade, of course, which is not so beautiful, but there we go. And and you know, so you get the, the this growth of Britain in the 18th century. But it wouldn't have gone anywhere. Real living standards for the ordinary wage Brit had not gone up much by the end of the 18th century. And if it had stopped there, then we would talk about it like we talk about those, you know, like ancient Greece or something. But what happened in the early 19th century was we then began to harness fossil fuels. And that meant suddenly we had something that wasn't showing diminishing returns, a source of energy, in, in, in a source of amplification of human labor that you could get more. The more you dug up of this stuff called coal, um, the, the cheaper it got. That wasn't true for forests or agricultural land or anything else. They tended to get more expensive the, 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 the more you used them. Um, uh, and so you get the opposite of diminishing returns. You get, you get um, increasing returns. Now, that makes me quite old-fashioned because the theory used to be that coal transformed, uh, coal helped the Industrial Revolution become a permanent thing. Um, And then it kind of has gone out of favor and everybody is now talking about um, institutional explanations and things like that. I still, uh, you know, if you look at the graph of human living standards, GDP per capita, it takes a step change 200 years ago and it starts going up at a much faster rate I think we need a special explanation for that, and I think it's about getting cheap energy. Well, it could be. It's hard to know, of course, and Deirdre has her answer, which is very creative about the idea that it was okay to be bourgeois, that it was uh, it's an interesting idea. I don't know if it's testable. It's a provocative thesis. Um, the part, The way I think about it, I don't have an answer either, but the way I think about it is that there are – if you can only trade with a relatively small number of people, which in primitive times meant a handful, and even in Middle Ages, I like to say, you know, we've tried buy local before, the movement buy local. It's called the Middle Ages, 
right? In the Middle That's Ages, right. occasionally a guy would come through from far away and bring you some spices or something you couldn't get nearby. But most of trade, the kind of trade you write a lot about in the book, is division of labor and specialization among a relatively small group of people. So for whatever reason, when prices of transportation fell enough, partly because of coal, partly the steam engine, partly other innovations, you could suddenly trade with a very much larger group of people. And the reason I think that's important, and we totally underappreciate it, and it, it, it is a theme in your book, is that took us from a Ricardian world to a Smithian world, where Smith, who talked about the division of labor being limited by the extent of the market, that little cute phrase, which we, we sometimes talk about, not much, unfortunately, that once we got the opportunity to trade with such a larger group, which is what modernity is, then the process has a life of its own. So the part I struggle with, which, which, I'm, which I'm challenging you with, is that – and I, I think I first read this in, in Robert Lucas's writings you – know, that the technology of farming in 1700 was the same as it was in Rome. Uh, and you lived a pretty much yeah. the same life in terms of how much protein you could wrest from the earth, how much nutrition you could wrest from the earth, rest with a W, you could take from the earth. And something changed, and once that changed, suddenly you could get more and more from less and less. And that revolution is the one that, that can last forever, it looks like. Absolutely, and I, I think I... I I do think that's a very perceptive analysis. However, I would caution that, that we, compared with the modern world, the world of naught to 1700 AD looks static. But it isn't static in technological terms. Um, you know, there, 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 are, there is a, an accumulation of technologies, you know, and the perfection of the horse collar or whatever that, that, that goes on, which may not improve your living standards all that much because of the population goes up or something like that. But, you know, a, 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 an 18th century ship was a darn sight more efficient than a Roman sailing ship. Fair I enough. Suspect. Uh, so I think it, it's simply that the graph is going up at a slower rate before that. Right. Uh, that, that's uh, a good point. But, yeah. But I, I do think that um, your analysis is absolutely right. I think the, the importance of transport is right. But, but also, I love this, this point you make about uh, specialization and exchange on a wider scale. Um, because, of course, that, the wider the scale, the more it brings you into contact with people who have differences, yeah. different preferences or different capabilities or different natural endowments. Um, uh, and, of course, the beauty of the, the Ricardian thing is that, that uh, the gain from trade is that the more you specialize, the more you've got to exchange, and the more you exchange, the more it pays to specialize. So it really is a, a, a virtuous circle. But the Smith point, which you, which you also write about, which I think is so often forgotten, is the more you specialize, and you know, Mike Munger talk, did a podcast on this uh, topic, and then I did one on, as a solo, uh, the more you specialize, and this is right out of Smith, the more advantageous it is to apply technology to it and capital. And that yes. is, that's the modern story. Uh, it's not so much the story of the past. It's some of it, but it's that opportunity to, to benefit from the productivity of labor embodied in capital that Smith talks about is really what sets it 
uh, going crazy. And, um, yes. you know, I joked with my, I just got an iPad and my, my son sent me an app that he'd like me to have that I'm not interested in, <laughs> that he finds to be a cool app. And I wrote him back, he's, he's 12, and I said, you know, when you get one in five years, you know, when it's a chip that's put under your skin so that when you think about the game, a virtual screen, holographic screen appears in front of you, uh, you can get it then. And, you know, the, the things that we enjoy today, as I said before, they're not just things that couldn't have been imagined 100 years ago. They couldn't have been imagined 15 years ago. And it makes you wonder what will be available 15 years from now. And there's no reason to think it won't be just as extraordinarily greater. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I just had a, a written exchange with someone this morning about climate, and, and he, he's a very senior government advisor on climate, and he was saying, I don't think we should be blasé about even two degrees over 200 years. And I replied, are you telling me that someone in 1810 should have used his then technologies um, to try and influence the world in 2010? Because that's what you're saying, uh, is that I should be doing something today with my existing technologies about the world in 2210. Um, and I'm sorry, but I just think my existing technologies are going to be laughably irrelevant <laughs> in terms of influencing that world. So, uh, yeah, it's it, it, the, the future is very opaque, um, always will be, uh, and uh, we have no idea what's just around the corner. By the way, just one point I want to make um, talking to you is, is, is wonderful on this, Russ, because uh, you know I'm learning from people like you all the time. I, I have no background as an economist. Um, I, as, a, as a reporter, I gradually came to cover more and more economics issues, but uh, in terms of school and university, I never read any economics courses of any kind. I'm totally autodidactic on Smith and Ricardo and that kind of thing, um, uh, thanks to people like Russ Roberts. Um, but the, you know, that to some extent that helps me, I think, because it gives me a naivety in asking. I was going to say, I think that's a questions. It's a great advantage, probably most of the time. I'm <laughs> sorry to report. I'm actually. I want to close with an aspect of that, but before we get there, I want to come back to that conversation you just reported because I think it's so fascinating and such a great example of perhaps some of the explanations for why we're so pessimistic. You know, when someone says we've got to do X, Y, or Z to help people 200 years from now, and you point out just brilliantly that, well, 200 years ago, can you imagine them thinking about what we would have available to us? It's, it's a lack of imagination. It's, a, it's being forced because we live in the present and we're not much good at history, and your book uh, helps redress that, that ignorance. It's a lack of imagination. It's a fear of the future without taking account anything that we've learned from the past. And as you say, it's it's a joke. It's laughable. It's it's inhuman, literally, to not imagine what could be available in 200 years that would make the world a better place and to think it will be something like the world we live in. There's no evidence for that thesis. <laughs> Everything around us tells us overwhelmingly that that is the thesis of a child. We expect the child to be unaware of the world of, of 20 years ago or 100 years ago. But for an adult to say that, which we all do, by the way. I'm not indicting your, your correspondent. But it's just yeah, yeah. personally because we all have this problem. It's hard to step back because you know time goes slow for us. But in the scope of, uh, of human progress, we're, we're, we're looking at a nanosecond. <clears throat> 
I, I, I think that's very nice. And and uh, but but yeah, it, it's um, ah, I've, I've lost lost the train of thought of what I was going to say in response to that. But never mind. It, it, uh, I, I do think that um, it, it's a difference between dy- remembering to be dynamic about the future and, and seeing having a static view. I mean, you, you think of. Um, uh, where we've got to as, as being a, a, a static position, but it isn't. It's always changing, and, and the, the, the possibility of perpetual change is something that we, we just don't notice. When we, and, of course, it's very new for our natures. You know, I mean, 300 years ago, you and I could have lived our whole lives and not seen a new technology, I suspect. You know, somebody might have come along with a new kind of plow to the village we lived in, um, Not too different. But, It'd be somewhat really uh, close to what we had. Second, it wouldn't be much of an improvement. It, it would be. That's right. It wasn't a like you said. There were there were little changes, but whereas now I'm I'm fully you know I'm kind of dithering about getting an iPad because I think well I, you know I don't want uh, there's no point getting one now. I'm going to wait for the next generation. It's <laughs> oh, possibly a good idea. <laughs> one will be along soon, Could be. and maybe the black pad will be better. And yeah. you know, I don't know what. <laughs> Um, so I, we're kind of spoiled in that. Yeah, respect. Well, that's for sure. Now, the, the point I was—I didn't get to really—I didn't think about. What oh, the, I know what it was. I was going go to ahead. say. Sorry, and go if, if I've got—if if I've got second, it's just yeah. uh, to throw back at you what is often thrown back at me on on, on that, which is um, that um, uh, that that the the past is no guide to the future. The kind of stockbroker argument—you know—just because something's gone up doesn't mean it's going to go on going up. Um, the 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 very fact that a whole series of white swans have just swum past doesn't mean that the next swan's not going to be black. Um, and people find this a bit of a killer argument against me. Yes, they say, do. Look, uh, I, you know, you're just doing extrapolationism. How do you answer that? I'd be interested to know. Well, it is a um, it's an accusation. It, it's it suggests that there's a dogmatic faith that that you and I have and. My colleague Don Boudreau writes about this a lot as well, you know, that, that somehow the future, just because it's always been brighter, will continue to get brighter. Um, and it often comes up in the exhaustion of natural resources. You, you gave a very yep. nice sequence there, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age. All those things didn't end because we ran out. But but this time, it could be different. And why would you think it wouldn't be catastrophic when we, quote, run out of oil? So I do think... It is a good idea not to always extrapolate from the past naively, but your extrapolation of mine isn't naive extrapolation. Our optimism about the future isn't because we look at a trend line and say, oh, it's always been getting better, so it probably will keep doing so. It's because we're saying something about the underlying process that produces that improvement. It's not just – uh, in winter, it keeps getting colder as we go as we go from you know September through January. It's getting colder and colder. Oh my gosh, we're entering a new ice age. But no, it doesn't keep going. That's not what we're saying. Once you understand the underlying science of of, of the seasons and climate, you understand it gets warmer again. So when we talk about the reason that we expect it to be better, better, it's because of the underlying creativity of the human enterprise and the ability to to marshal it. So, for example. Uh, we're talking about the iPad. Uh, it, it's um, the biggest model is 64 gigabytes, and uh, in America, that's uh, the 64 gigabyte model is. Uh, let's see, I think it's 6.99, and it holds a certain amount of stuff. 
It doesn't have a camera. It doesn't have a video. And you're thinking rationally, uh, maybe I'll wait a little bit till it gets a little better. Now, if I said to you, oh, you're just going to assume it's going to keep getting better? What if it gets worse? Well, that would be a stupid <laughs> assumption it's going to get worse, right? Yeah, I missed but, your chance. Yeah, oh, that. you missed it. But, but why, are you, why are you so confident that it's going to get, that the next generation will be lighter, faster, right. bigger? Not just because it's gone on getting better before, but it's because, just because I know there are guys working on improvements, and I know they, you know, there's a whole industry there trying to find out ways of making it cheaper. And if and it turns out, and if it turns out that a better way to communicate with others and integrate your photos and your work life and your music and your diversion comes along, it won't get better. It'll disappear, and it'll be replaced by something better. Now, why am I so confident, which I am, by the way, that something even be- as marvelous as this, this working toy is – and I'm, I just uh, – I'm, I'm five days into it, Matt, so I'm a little bit – <clears throat> I've got some emotional problems. I'm a little bit I'm, addicted I'm, I'm to envious. it. It's early. It's early. I may, I may come out of it. I'm, I'm optimistic I'll come out of it, and it'll just be a part of my life like my laptop. But why is it that, that, I'm, that I think there'll be something better even and that this, this iPad in 20 years, the thing I told my son, will look like the cell phone of 1992, which would look like a giant World War II walkie-talkie. Right? Why do I know that selling better has come along? Oh, is it because I'm just a mindless optimist about the future? No. It's why your book's called The Rational Optimist. Absolutely. You know something about what caused the improvement. Now, there are, there are limits. Right? We live in the physical world. I don't think people are going to learn how to swing their arms and fly, but they don't have to. They can use an airplane. We, we find ways to do the unimaginable throughout all of human history, and it's, there's no reason to see that it would stop. It, 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 yeah, no, it, it's, um, uh, I, I think that, that point about, you know, it, it, the, the rational being quite an important, uh, word in my title is, is key. Uh, when people say, what do you mean by the rational optimist as opposed to the irrational? And, uh, and I say, look, I, I've arrived at optimism through argument, not through, I'm not a particularly, you know, cheery sort of person. I, I mean, at three in the morning, I'm a pessimist like everyone else. <laughs> Um, it's just you have I, I look anxiety, around the world no and I say, I say, oh my God, actually, you know, and, and by the way, it has affected my uh, behavior in life a little bit, writing this book, um, uh, because whenever I get into these conversations about, oh God, I mean, the trains are getting so unpunctual these days or whatever, you know, these grumpy old men conversations, as we call them in Britain, there's, there's, this, there's a television series in Britain called Grumpy Old Men, where they get celebrities to, to sort of moan about what annoys them about the modern world, and it's very funny, really, but anyway, um, whenever I get into a grumpy old man conversation, uh, nowadays, I, I kick myself, and I say to my friends suddenly in the pub, you know, shut up, everything's fine, the train's pretty bloody good, have you heard how bad, bad it was, you know, 100 years ago or something, they look at me like I've gone mad, of course, but uh, it's fun. Yeah, it's good for your um, your internal well being. It's ruining your social life, I'm sure. Being this, uh, yeah, being the exactly. rational optimist, it's not it's not the easiest banner to wave. Um, and of course, you know, when we go through a period like we're going through now, and, and your book was written in the middle of this, and so it's an interesting perspective. That's right, and I, you know, there was a degree to which I was, you know, launching into a headwind. Yep. And yet, actually, that's a good thing to do when you're trying to take off, isn't it? But whatever. Yeah. You know. Well, but it's a great point. Because you look at the mess we're in now, and people say, well, 
it was a good run in America, say for 250 years, but you know we've got this Social Security, Medicaid, uh, Medicare crisis that we're not going to be able to to solve politically. And now there is truth to that, right? We can yeah. ruin our political system with some stupid things. We can do some stupid things that would slow this process that we're talking about down, and, and we're always the, at risk of that. Yeah, the tax eaters may get the upper hand. Um, uh, and, and and yes, by the way, I am pretty struck by how pessimistic America's mood is at the moment. I mean, I've, I've been used all my life to hopping across the Atlantic for, for uh, you know, instead of taking Prozac, in other words, because <laughs> you guys tend to cheer us up. We have fewer grumpy European. old men. It's a, yeah. <laughs> we don't breed <laughs> them as effectively. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to close. We're almost out of time. I want to close with um, an observation, and, and it, it came to mind because of your remark about being self-taught. The first great economist who, in, in some ways, your book is an implicit homage to is, is Adam Smith, right? So, Absolutely. So yep. 1776, he comes along, and he says a bunch of things that were revolutionary at the time, both from the scope of them, as you talk about. His, he wasn't just an economist. He wrote about a lot of things. But also, um, he saw things other people didn't see. Uh, he, he made the point that money isn't everything, that mercantilism, that accumulating silver and gold is not the source of the wealth of nations, that the source of our wealth is our skills and what we can produce, not what we uh, count in the counting house. That was one of the first points of that book. He goes on to say, where does it come from, the division of labor, what we're talking about through this hour? And do you find it strange that 200 and – 36 years or 234 years ago, that book gets written, and we don't understand the lesson. Not only that, we don't really teach it in our economics classes. So you say you didn't take any economics class. If you had, you wouldn't learn much about it. We don't spend a lot of time teaching this lesson. How strange is that? Absolutely. And, uh, I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've thought uh, about the um, uh, um, Wealth of Nations what the hell were my school teachers doing not telling me about this? You know, it just, it really, it, it, it just sort of, um, uh, it strikes me between the eyes. You know, this is the most brilliant idea I've ever come across with the possible exception of Darwin's natural selection and nobody ever told me about this. Um, and I had to find out for, find it out for myself really quite embarrassingly late in my life. Um, and, uh, uh, and and but but you know that means uh, as Hans Rosling once put it in a talk, you know at least there's something for me to do in the world <laughs> to to, <laughs> to, to, yeah. to to evangelize. Um, but the idea that prosperity is accumulation is still out there in spades, and so there's still work for you to do, Ross. Yeah, you too, boy. Well, thanks for your. Um Great contribution uh, in this effort. It's um, desperately needed. Well, I tell you, I'm really, I really appreciate the fact that, that proper economists like you have taken my amateur effort seriously. But and and you know, it's not the last word by any means. But it, it's it's just a, such an exciting game to contribute to. My guest today has been Matt Ridley. Matt, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. 
I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.